Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com slash sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Chapter 9 of Peter Singer's book, The Most Good You Can Do, is titled Altruism and Happiness. And the key question that's coming up here is, are effective altruists making sacrifices that then make them unhappy? And the answer is no, but it's not a simple no. He begins by saying, when people learn what effective altruists have done, they often wonder what would lead someone to make so great a sacrifice for a stranger, but then he observes many effective altruists don't see what they're doing as a sacrifice at all. So many of the effective altruists themselves, when you ask them about that, they say, well, it's not really a a sacrifice. And we we do need to spend a little bit of time thinking about what constitutes a sacrifice and our attitudes about sacrificing and morality. There's another question that comes up towards the end of the chapter that we definitely need to take a look at because this is a perennial issue that pops up over and over and over again whenever we frame things in terms of altruism on the one hand and egoism on the other and view them as opposites. So if these effective altruists aren't really making sacrifices and they're getting something out of it themselves, doesn't that mean that they're not making sacrifices and they're not altruists then because, you know, sacrificing your own interests for that of the other, that's what's definitive about altruism as opposed to egoism. And that's actually a very wrongheaded point of view but one that comes up over and over and over again. I'll give you a prime example of that that's not covered in the book. In the last several decades, there has been a sometimes useful, but most of the time, a total distraction discussion going on about Aristotelian virtue ethics and his discussion of friendship. You know, in loving the friend, are you really being just egoistic? And actually, Aristotle even addresses this in Nicomachean Ethics Book 9, talking about different kinds of self-centeredness. And it's been like a total distraction and waste with a few little nuggets of wisdom here and there. But people get really obsessed about this. And, you know, the example that he gives about Thomas Hobbes, there's a similar example about Abraham Lincoln. You know, so this is an issue that keeps coming up over and over again. Is a person an egoist or an altruist? You know, there's a divide between them and you can't possibly connect the two. So this is what the the chapter is really about. And we can look at what effective altruists actually say. So we should talk about the sacrifice thing, right? If we think about it in terms of income, money, and happiness, which is, I think Singer is right to focus on this because a lot of effective altruism does have to do with how you manage your sources of income, what you're doing with your money, what you're spending money on, who you're giving it to, to further other people's interests, needs, desires, things like that. So there's a lot of possible different perspectives or experiences on this. And I I think it's good to look at the examples that Singer uses here because they show us how diverse they could be. So he says, Toby Ord originally thought that living on 18,000 pound a year would be a sacrifice worth making because of the good he could do with the income he was foregoing. Later, he realized it wasn't a sacrifice at all because his sense of engagement in making the world a better place means far more to him than new gadgets or a bigger house, right? 
So there's a trade-off happening and he thinks that he's just trading off some of his own happiness for that of others. It turns out it makes him happier in the process, right? Because of the sense of engagement. Julia Wise sees her ability to save hundreds of lives as an amazing opportunity, but demands no more of herself than she can cheerfully give. So she's saying, I'm going to do as much as I can while still remaining cheerful about this and not starting to get into grudging, right? Or resentful behavior. Ian Ross is familiar with the psychological research about the hedonic treadmill of consumer spending, which shows that when we consume more, we enjoy it for a short time, but then adapt to that level and need to consume still more in order to maintain our level of enjoyment. So he says, while donating doesn't give him much of a rush, he also doesn't think he's missing out on much because of being informed about how our desires and pleasures and happiness actually work when it comes to consumer spending or consumerism in general, he says, I don't want to go down that path. I don't need to experience that. I see other people doing that and I can draw on their own negative experiences to see that I'm not missing that much. Charlie Bressler, the unpaid executive director of The Life You Can Save has, has told me, I truly don't believe in altruism. I believe the life I'm saving is my own and I should have started out doing this kind of work much sooner. So lots of different interesting examples. They're not all in it getting the exact same thing out of it. What is being sacrificed? That's the key thing there in either having less money, making less money, right? And therefore having less money to spend or to save. Some people might want to put money aside because, you know, they don't have a adequate social security net in their country, like our country doesn't. And we have to, you know, put things aside for retirement or face the prospect of, of working well into our 70s or 80s. And uh, so, you know, people rightly do want to have some money or some resources, right? What's being sacrificed in having less of that? Now think about the word sacrifice. What does that imply? When you make a sacrifice, you're losing something that otherwise you could make use of, you could enjoy, you could have. And typically we talk about sacrificing one thing for another. If it's a good sacrifice, the payoff is greater than the thing that you're losing. And we could talk about this just with money in terms of saving, right? Should you save money or should you spend your money now while you have it and enjoy yourself while you're sacrificing present enjoyment and present spending for future greater spending if you're saving your money, aren't you? Unless, of course, inflation destroys it or something else comes along. But we can talk about all sorts of other registers. It doesn't simply have to be money versus money. It can be money versus having enough time to spend time with those you love. It can be money versus knowing that you're making a difference in people's lives overseas. It could be money versus animal welfare. It could be all sorts of things. So what is it actually being sacrificed? Does having money make us happy? So he says, to determine whether effective altruists are making a sacrifice, we need to look at the chief determinants of happiness, or at least those that might be affected by the kinds of choices effective altruists make. And he says, studies of the relationship between income and happiness or well-being indicate that for people at low levels of income, an increase in income does lead to greater happiness. Money can buy happiness if you're dirt poor, right? If you are, it can also do it if you're in the red, if you're deep in debt, like student loan debt is a prime example. It's 
holding many people back from living the kind of lives that they probably should be able to enjoy. But unfortunately, they got saddled with lots and lots of debt, oftentimes without knowing fully what they were getting into. There's people who are like, oh, they should have known everything before they headed into it. And that's really kind of an uncharitable way to look at student loan debt. So for people at low levels of income, an increase in income does lead to greater happiness. But once income is sufficient to provide for one's needs and a degree of financial security, further increases tend to taper off. They may produce an additional amount of happiness, but not that much. And I don't can't say this from experience, but between your first million and your 40th million, the difference is really not that great. It's not as much as people would expect, unless you're like super into the numbers and comparing things with others. But oftentimes that takes you down all sorts of rabbit holes of envy and greed and unhappiness and conflict. So there's other ways to boost one's happiness. And there's some, some interesting results here that we don't don't need to really go through. But the idea that living on low income is going to make your life a misery turns out to be largely unfounded. He says, perhaps we imagine money is important to our well-being because we need money to buy consumer goods, right? So maybe that would actually make us happier. Buying things, as he says, has become an obsession that beckons us away from what really advances our well-being. And he's got this great example of how many people have garages that they can't put their cars in because the garages are full of the crap that they have been buying and stocking up in their garages, sometimes never using, sometimes just, you know, pet projects that they're into or decorations that'll go up once a year, things like that. If you, if you can't, this is actually probably a good measure. If you can't put your car into the building that was designed to house your car, there's something off, something going on there, right? Something that's off about your situation. And he says, despite the fact that the growth in size of the typical American home means that Americans today have three times the amount of space per person they had in 1950, they still pay a total of $22 billion a year to rent extra storage space. Is this making them happy? The answer is no. As a matter of fact, it may actually correlate to reduced happiness. So buying consumer goods is not the way to make people happy. But interestingly, as they point out, using our money, using our resources to make other people less miserable, to alleviate suffering or to make them happier, does tend to make us happy as human beings. And he talks about an interesting experiment here and surveying and stuff like that. So the point of this is there's a positive correlation between having donated to charity and being at a higher level of happiness. And he says, this shows correlation, not causation. It seems that the causation can run both ways because people who are happy are more likely to give to help others. And, you know, this leads to a positive feedback loop. So one way to actually have a happier life is to have some sort of role in other people's happiness, right? So that, you know, that's an interesting set of uh, issues when it comes to money. We could also apply some of this perhaps to time. Singer also talks about organ donation. And, and this is a good one because, okay, you give your money away, that's outside of yourself, right? I mean, sometimes we feel like our money is us or our possessions are us, but that's a mistake. But if I give away a kidney 
or, you know, some of my blood or some bone marrow or liver tissue or something like that. I'm literally giving a piece of myself to somebody else. And consider cases where people do this without it going to a family member. They're like, listen, this is just a good thing to do. There's not enough of these organs around. I'm a viable donor. I'm going to give a kidney. I can live with, with one kidney. Somebody else could use that kidney. Wouldn't that be a wonderful gift? And so he says, this is actually a huge investment. It's having surgery, taking time off to recover, accepting a degree of risk to one's long-term health and longevity, all for a complete stranger. Isn't that a sacrifice? And then he says, the evidence shows that it's not. In a study, seven people who gave non-directed organ donations, six kidney donors and one a liver segment, were interviewed three months after their donation. Now, this is a small study, right? But uh, we can draw something from it. Three of them had met the recipients and found this a satisfying experience. The other four remained anonymous, but were pleased with what they did. None experienced psychological problems, and they had an overall enhanced self-esteem and greater degree of happiness afterwards. And then this is where he talks about, let's talk, think about self-esteem. So self-esteem is, is an important component of happiness. I think that's completely right. You can have as much money as you want. You can have as much power as you want. You can be a celebrity, these external goods as we call them in, in philosophy. You can also have a beautiful body. You can be in peak health. And if you don't have self-esteem, all of that can just be ways in which you feel like your life sucks right? If you don't have good relationships with other people, even if you do have good relationships with other people who like you and you don't have self-esteem, that can be problematic. So he talks about Richard Kirshen, this, this Canadian philosopher who's developed a concept of reasonable self-esteem. Now that's an important point there, reasonable. There's some people who have you know, a high degree of self-esteem and probably shouldn't. They are vain, egotistical, jerkish people who think that they're way more important than others. That's not reasonable self-esteem. Reasonable self-esteem is based on a accurate self-assessment. And he says that this fits particularly well with the mindset of effective altruists. He begins with the concept of a reasonable person, a person whose defining commitment is to have reasonable beliefs about the world, what is in his or her interests, about what they ought to do. And so that is quite important. And now here's where it gets back to this issue of altruism. It says, at the core of the reasonable person's ethical life, according to Keshen, is a recognition that others are like us and therefore, in some sense, their lives and their well-being matter as much as our own. So the reasonable person cannot have self-esteem while ignoring the interests of others whose well-being she recognizes as being equally significant. The most solid basis for self-esteem is to live an ethical life, a life in which one contributes to the greatest possible extent to making the world a better place. So in a way, this can foster your self-esteem, but it's also something that flows out of genuine self-esteem as well. So self-esteem is connected with doing good for others, and that leads to happiness not just for those others, but also for the effective altruist. So recognition of others as valuable is quite important. Now, this brings us back to the key question that was asked a little bit earlier. He says, if effective altruists are not making a sacrifice, do they deserve to be considered altruists at all? And here's where we have to be really, really careful. What does it mean to be altruistic? How should we characterize it? If we characterize it solely in opposition to egoism, and then, you know, whether we value egoism or value altruism, we're going to get things wrong. Because then we say the only time that you're really being altruistic is when you sacrifice your own personal interests, your happiness, your needs, your desires for that of the other. 
Singer says that's a mistake. What it takes to be an altruist is to be concerned with the other. It doesn't mean necessarily that you have to sacrifice your own interests. That is actually a mistaken conception of altruism. Probably, a, we might even say in many cases, a pathological conception of altruism. And, you know, it's possible in many cases to do things that are beneficial both for the self and the other. I brought up, you know, Aristotle as an example. In a good friendship, you are enjoying yourself. The friend is enjoying themselves. You're both fulfilling each other's needs. It's not as if you say, oh, I'm only a good friend if I place your needs so far above my own that I don't attend to my own needs at all. Aristotle would say, that's just stupid. That's not being a good friend at all. And you're being a pain in the butt to your friend over there with your whining and misery and, oh, I'm making all these sacrifices for you. You're, that's actually a going off the path. Being other-centered is what makes you altruistic. Caring for them, thinking about how it's going to affect them. And so, you know, he's got some interesting examples here with the first conception. The rich man who does as Jesus tells him, selling all he has and giving proceeds to the poor. He would still not be an altruist because he was asking Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life, right? And so Singer says, listen, we don't have to make self-sacrifice a necessary element of altruism. We regard people as altruists because of the kind of interests they have rather than because they're sacrificing their interests. And he gives this example of Hobbes, who very famously preached an egoistic philosophy and, you know, albeit with some qualifications, gave to a beggar and people are like, you say you're an egoist and yet you're giving to a beggar. Curious to use the meme that's now become almost a, a cliche. And Hobbes says, no, I, I like giving to this beggar. It makes me happy to do so. So, you know, while it is in fact, making the beggar happy, it's also making me happy. There's a similar story about whether it happened or not, about Abraham Lincoln saving some pigs from, from dying, you know, while I didn't want to hear the squeals of the dying pigs and the, you know, the sad mom or stuff, stuff like that. Is this really just being an egoist? No, no. The egoist is somebody who typically doesn't care about other people's interests and desires, except insofar as it affects them, and acts entirely on that basis. The altruist is merely somebody who is willing to take other people's desires, satisfactions, sufferings, their outcomes into consideration as a matter of course and thinks that that's how we ought to behave as human beings. So effective altruists are not just covert egoists. They could be egoistic to some degree and that's perfectly fine. That doesn't prevent them from being effective altruists and that certainly doesn't get in the way of them being happy through living a life of effective altruism. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.